0: We've been in Hebrews chapter 10. If you're new here, we study the Bible book by book, verse by verse. And um, we've been going through this wonderful letter. It was a letter that was written to Hebrew believers in the first century, Christians that had been Jews. They had converted to Christianity. This is about 30 or so years after the cross. And, and they were weary. They were under persecution. They were... Uh, being oppressed. There was great persecution coming. Rome was uh, still firmly in control in Israel, and they had the empire, the persecution from the Romans, as well as the Jews, had been increasing. And so this letter was written as an encouragement to first century Hebrew believers, and that's why it's called Hebrews. And the things that we glean from it are great uh, as far as that goes. We've been looking at all the way through chapter 10, verse uh, 18, was verse 18 concludes the doctrinal aspect of this letter uh, where the writer has systematically gone into Judaism and taken one point at a time and illustrated why and how Christ is better that Jesus is better than the old covenant the new covenant's better than the old that he is as high priest is better than the old high priest because he's a he has a higher order he's gone through and one by one, knock these things down that the people were trying to go back to and lean on because the temptation to go was to go back to what they knew. And essentially what he said is, that, number one, it doesn't exist anymore. It's been superseded. It's been done away. And number two, you can't go back. What we're going to look at further in chapter 10, I don't think we'll get there this morning, is the strongest warning in the New Testament where he says, to go back is tantamount to apostasy, and you are looking for judgment from God if you do that. He's building towards that right now. Uh, it was interesting. I was talking to my son on Friday on the phone, and and uh, I was I was telling him uh, we're getting into this whole section here in, in Hebrews chapter ten, because he always likes to know, yeah, Dad, where are you teaching and all that. And I, I actually I kind of started to preach it to him on the phone (laughs) and he's going wow that's some heavy stuff and he said well you better tell your people buckle up buttercup and I just laughed I said I'm gonna put that in the message so I did um because this is some really intense stuff, guys. Uh, in verse 18, he, he says, now where there's remission of sins and lawless deeds, there's no longer an offering for sin. We looked at that. That's where we ended last week. And essentially what he's saying is there is no need for another offering for sin because Jesus once for all made that offering. He, it, Past, present, and future sins, if you have come and let the weight of your life down on Jesus, then you're part of his people. You don't have to worry about another sacrifice. There's no more need for another sacrifice. His was sufficient and is sufficient for everything that we can think, say, or do. That's the basis of God's judgment. That's the basis of what sin is, thoughts, words, and deeds, that it's done. It's covered. It's not only covered, it's gone. Uh, and so as we look at that, you'll notice that I've named this message cause and effect. you guys know what cause and effect is? Uh, it, it's a universal principle. And what it is, it, it, cause and effect is a relationship between events or things where one is the result of the other. Okay? Uh, examples. We received seven inches of rain for, in four hours. That's the cause. The effect, the underpass was flooded. I never brushed my teeth. Cause, I have five cavities, effect. Uh, many buffalo were killed. Buffalo became almost extinct. Uh, there, There's weird stuff in the spiritual arena that gets put out there too, and I, I want to talk about that for a moment. How many times have you heard somebody on television say, sow a seed to my ministry? Cause, and God will bless you, or you will have abundance, or you will prosper, or all that. That's the effect. That's a false Presumption. That's a false cause and effect. They're putting something false forward. How many times have you heard, well, if you do this, then God will do that. No, it's on the basis of the finished work of Christ. He has done these things and therefore we respond in kind. We're going to look at that this morning. It's interesting. I was telling, uh, talking to one of the guys, uh, in the media team, uh, before service about the, the writer here is just so succinct, and the way he lays this out, uh, one of the things that uh, preachers look at when they preach, I, I teach more than preach, but one of the things that they do is they look for a three-point homily or a three-point sermon. That's about as much as the, the mind can absorb and, and, and all of that, and yet what I was telling him is that the writer here, he does all the work for me. I don't have to worry about an outline because this is a three-point message. And it's amazing how it lays out. We're going to look at that as we go along. Uh, To lay some groundwork, we're going to look at how things were in the old covenant under the law of Moses, and then we're going to contrast it to how things are in the new. We've done a lot of teaching in that because the writer has been doing a lot of teaching in that, literally had a Bible study with his people as he's gone through and tagged these Old Testament passages as we've been looking at in the past weeks, and then brought forward what that means to us as Christians. And so uh, thinking about in, in Exodus chapter 19, there's Moses and the children of Israel at Mount Sinai, 50 days after they had been delivered through the Red Sea from Egypt, uh, and it says in, in Exodus 19 that Moses said to the Lord, the people cannot come up to Mount Sinai for you warned us saying, set bounds around the mountain and consecrate it, set it apart. And the Lord said to him away, get down and then come up you and Aaron with you, but do not let the priests and the people break through to come up uh, to the Lord, lest he break out against them. The Lord had warned them, you can only come so far because to come further you'll be destroyed. He said, see to it that not even a beast touches the mountain. And and you have to understand the holiness of God. You have to understand the separateness of God. He is utterly holy. And we are not. We are utterly sinful. And, and, And yes, that creates the need for our sin to be atoned for. In the Old Covenant, we've been looking at it with the sacrificial system that the priest could atone for sins, to to create a covering for sin, never to eliminate, to cause sins to be remitted, to be taken up. We looked at that word last week, to be cut off, that that sin is no longer a part of me. And so in the Old Covenant, in the Old Testament, the holiness of God was there, but God wanted to have a place to dwell with his people, so he created this thing called the tabernacle. We've looked at that again. We've looked at that in depth in, in past weeks. And the tabernacle was a place where he could be in the camp among the Israelites, but he was separate. There, it was a yard with a tent in it and the tent had two compartments and the, you'd go in and the first thing you'd see is this altar of sacrifice and you'd go to this labor after that, which was a big wash basin so the priests could become ceremonially clean before they went into the actual tabernacle itself. And so, but, and God said, He said, look, see to it again that the priests, when they come, that they wash at the labor, that they clean themselves ceremonially. Because to come further than that, to come into the tabernacle, if they haven't cleansed themselves, they will die. And it's because, again, of the holiness of God. We have trouble recognizing and understanding the holiness of God, but you've got to realize that our God is a consuming fire. He is completely separate from above us and pure as relates to infinity. And he cannot have sinful flesh in his presence. Therefore, the provision for the sacrifices they could only come part way. They could never bring man into fellowship with God. They could never grant a relationship with God. That's the point. So uh, if we look at this, I, I want to also bring out, too, as we get into it, you'll notice I have some some text in parentheses in, in the slides. Uh, when he says the word having here, it's mentioned three times. Uh, there, we, well, there, In this passage we're looking at this morning, 19 through 25 in chapter 10 of Hebrews, The word having is mentioned three times. The word let us, the words let us is mentioned three times. There's the there's the outline. Uh having though is it's a it's a decent translation, but every other translation, the New American Standard, the English Standard, the New International Version, the Holman Bible, etc., all of those translations render the word having as since we have. And that's a better translation because it's something we already possess. It's not It's not a passive having, it's since we have. And so as we go through this, that's how we're going to break it down. And I'm going to go through the verses and then we'll come back and we'll unpack them and take a look at what that means to us. Verse 19 of Hebrews 10, therefore, brethren, having or since we have boldness to enter the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he consecrated for us through the veil that is his flesh, And having, or since we have, a high priest over the house of God, let us draw near, with a true heart and full assurance of faith, having, since we have, our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as is the manner of some, but exhorting one another, and so much the more as you see the day approaching. So the author of Hebrews is saying, essentially, he's saying, in light of what Jesus has done, in light of the fact that Jesus has brought you to God, stay close and hold on. Don't give up. The people here were in danger of giving up. They were thinking of going back. He says, don't stop believing his promises and settle in with like-minded people, because there you will find strength and purpose. And that's essentially paraphrasing what he said in 19 through 25. So when we look at this, I want to talk about three things about the word since, or since you have. Uh, As we go back through it, I want to look in verse 19. He says, since you have... Uh, since we have boldness to enter the holiness by the blood of Jesus. And he's essentially saying, since you have a legal right, what we've looked at before is Jesus said, I didn't come to abolish the law, I came to fulfill it. He fulfilled the law of Moses, and now by faith, the law of Moses is fulfilled in us, in Christ. We don't have to try to fulfill it. So he says, having boldness. This is It's stated as a past tense fact. You've got to look at the tense here, and it is a fact. It's not something that, we're wanting to have. It's not something that we desire to have. It's something that we already possess. All right. It's not an exhortation, it's a fact. Uh, the boldness to enter the holy the, the holiest, he's talking about the holy of holies. He's making reference to the holy of holies, which was that inner compartment. Remember in the tabernacle and then in the temple where the Ark of the Covenant was and all of that. Uh, he, what he's talking about, what that what that is synonymous with is the presence of God. So he's saying that we have boldness to, to come right in to the presence of God. Uh, it's a boldness to enter the Holy of Holies. And it, it's it's uh, the best way I can describe this, I was thinking about this, uh, it's like a child in a parent's home. How many of you have kids that don't live with you, but when they show up, uh, the fridge is open? Yeah, I know what that's like. Yeah. All right. I remember some, one time Stacy and I were house sitting for an elderly woman and, and she was pretty sick and we were there and, uh, we were all in the living room one, one day when we were, we were taking care of this woman. She was there. I mean, we weren't just house sitting. We were taking care of her and she needed constant care. And so we knew her well and we were doing that. And then her daughter showed up and her daughter goes straight to the fridge and she hauled out our dinner. That Stacy had made and brought with us, and we're kind of going. Um, we know you kind of like have this thing with the fridge, but that's our dinner, so we'll share it with you. But I, I you see, but the 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 point is, is that the kind of relationship that we're talking about here—that you have a legal right to come into the relation into the presence of God—is the same thing that if your kid shows up and they've got the rule and the reign in the house, they there's no barrier there. And he's saying that that's the kind of relationship that I want with you. I don't want you to just passively know that you can come in. I want you to know that you are absolutely welcome to come in. You are absolutely urged to come in. You are part of the family. That's the idea here. When he's talking about we have a legal right, he's not saying, my kids won't come in and raid the fridge and say, I have a legal right to this. No, that's understand they have the right And it's something that's implied, it's an implicit right, it's not something they have to have stated in writing, in a contract and all. But in the New Covenant, we have the legal right to come into the presence of God because of the blood of Jesus. That's the point. So when he talks about the presence of God, that was again symbolic... It was actually the place where God dwelt in the tabernacle, in the Holy of Holies, and man could only go in, remember we've talked about it, one time, once a year, one man could go into one that place. So you had the highest priest, the high priest was the only guy that could come in, on the high day, the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur, and the only place, the, the Holy of Holies. So you had all of that in place, and it couldn't produce a relationship with God. It couldn't bring man into fellowship with God. All he could do was cover sin. Interesting, he says that we have boldness to come in. In the Levitical priesthood, which we've looked at, the priesthood that came with the law of Moses, when the people came in, they came in with fear and trembling. They came in knowing that they were just men. They came in knowing that there was no way, except for that office that they held, that they had any right to come into the presence of God. We can come in, contrasted that to the New Testament, the New Covenant, that we come in boldly. Uh, we've looked at that in, in chapter 4. He says we have confidence to come boldly before the throne of grace to find help in time of need. And that's the thought that the, the, the writer's bringing across here. We have this. It's already in place. Question. Do you avail yourself of it? Do you come into the presence of... Do you come? Do you allow his presence to manifest? Now, God is omnipresent. Don't get me wrong. It's not like he resides in a place. He is all present. When people talk about, you know, bringing down the presence of God or or hosting the presence of God, in a way I get a little weird about that. I understand what's being said. Essentially what it is is becoming more sensitive to the presence of God, which we do. Like when we worship, I become more aware of God's presence as I go. He's already here. And, and so understand that. He's talking about this whole deal is essentially putting forth that he is there. He is here. We come into his presence by simply choosing, acknowledging that the blood of Jesus is on our lives. And hopefully it is. And through that, we have the ability to come. Verse 20, he says, "...by a new and living way which he consecrated for us through the veil that is his flesh." Now, this new and living way, we've talked about that again. Uh, the, the writer's summarizing here. Like I said, at verse 18, he concludes the doctrinal aspect of his teaching to these people. And from verses 19 through, through and on, on forward, he's applying it. Uh, that's extremely important, folks. What we do, we don't just look at the Bible as a book report. We don't come here to learn facts and figures. I mean, we do sometimes learn those, but there's a point to it. And the point is, do I apply God's Word to my life? That's the application. That's what the writer's doing. He's saying that we're coming into Him, His presence boldly by a new and living way, which He consecrated for us. Who's doing the work? He is. See, cause and effect. He's doing the work, I respond. It's never the other way around. If you get tangled up in a religious organization that wants to put it on you, you need to think twice about tagging on to that organization because it's not on the basis of man's goodness or man's ability. It's on the the, the basis of the finished work of Christ, the person and the work. It's always It always distills down to the person of Christ, who he is and the work of Christ, what he accomplished on your behalf, on my behalf. Anything else? Question. This new and living way, it's contrasted here. He knows what he's been talking about is the old way, the old dead way, the old covenant. He said that's gone. It's passed off the scene. It's obsolete. It's no longer effective. A new covenant had to come because there was a new high priest. And with a new high priest, there was a new way to deal with sin. And with a new way to deal with sin, there was a new thing going on. It was a new and living way. And he consecrated. He set it apart. He did the work. He established it. We've looked at that, that he not only established the new covenant, but he upholds both sides. He's the guarantor. He does both ends. He represents us to the Father, and he represents the Father to us. This is effective today as it was 2,000 years ago when Jesus did it. That's the point where we apply this to our lives. When he says a new and living way, it's worth mentioning it's the only way. Jesus didn't say, I am a way, a truth, and a life. He said, I am the singular way to God. I am the singular truth about God. And I am the life. And if you come to me, I'll share that life with you. He consecrated for us all of this. It says through the veil, which is his flesh, That's an interesting thing. We've talked about the types and the shadows in the Old Testament. The writer has gone into great lengths to tell us that these things that were happening in the Old Covenant, all of the things in the tabernacle, we looked at how they pointed to a greater reality because they were shadows. They weren't the ultimate reality. The ultimate reality is Christ. And yet we have these shadows. And and what he's doing is he's pointing out that the actual veil itself was a shadow. Now the veil in the tabernacle, there was a holy place where The priests would go in every day, and then there was this big, thick rug, essentially a big veil, it was very thick, that they would go in once a year. That's where the dwelling place of God was. He was separate from man. He couldn't be with man because sin had never been taken out of the way. It it could be covered. And, And we talked about the tabernacle, the temple, were to keep people alive. They weren't to bring people into fellowship with God. And so when he talks about the veil being his flesh, that veil... What happened in Matthew chapter 25, uh, or I'm sorry, chapter 27, says the veil was torn. And when it was torn, it was torn from the top down, signifying it wasn't man's work to tear the veil, it was God's. And when the veil was torn, the way was opened for man now to come into full-blown fellowship with God. And that's what happened. It says that as Jesus gave up his spirit... In Matthew 27, that as he did that, the, the, the earth quaked and all of that, rocks were split, dead came out of their graves, this whole scene, and in that, the veil was torn. It says the veil was symbolic, it pointed to the greater reality of his flesh, because the veil was torn, he was torn on the cross, that through that veil, his flesh, we come in. We come past the veil. The veil was a barrier between man and God's presence, is the point. His sacrifice, his death, opened the way to God. His blood made it safe to approach. Do you see what he's saying here? We talk about the body and the blood. We do the symbols when we partake of communion here. And and yes, they're symbolic. They're not the actual, as some people teach. But Jesus said to do this, do it often, do it in remembrance of me. This is my body, which is given for you. And this is my blood, which is essentially spilled for you. And so the body and the blood, it's all important that we understand what those symbolically represent. And the writer here says, talking about the veil, the veil wasn't rolled up. It wasn't taken down. It wasn't pulled open. It was torn and his body would be torn. That's that's the the symbolism, powerful symbolism here that the writer's bringing across. These people would understand, again, a good Jewish boy, a good Jewish girl, she would get what's being referred to here. They would understand that when they're talking about the veil, they're talking about the tabernacle and the temple. And he's talking about that was symbolic. It was symbolic. It was a, a shadow that pointed to a greater reality fulfilled only by Jesus Christ. the veil was about somewhere between 7 and 11 inches thick, uh, this veil that was torn. It was about 60 feet high, the one at the temple. The temple was a lot taller structure. It was a permanent structure, a lot taller than the tabernacle, which was only 15 feet high. But this this veil, when Jesus went to the cross, a 60-foot-high veil being split from the top down. I think it's worth mentioning that the Jews would go on after Jesus... Ascended, and they would sew the veil back up because they kept the sacrificial system going. Alright? Uh, something that, that reminded me of is in Galatians chapter one, the apostle Paul. Galatians, by the way, it's the hottest letter in the New Testament. Paul is hopping mad. I don't know any other way to characterize it, but it, he is angry because people were coming in and trying to compel Christians to start living like Jews again. That's the same thing that's going on here. The writer is saying, no, 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 you cannot live like a Jew. You can't go back to the old system. It's obsolete. It's been replaced. It doesn't work. You have to live for Christ. You have to understand what this thing is called Christianity, and there is no going back. It doesn't exist. Well, people were going around. They were called Judaizers, and they were going around trying to compel people to live as. Oh, yeah, the grace of God is fine, but you really still need to subject yourself to the laws of Moses. Uh, And in, in Galatians chapter one, verse six, Paul writes. I marvel that you're turning away so soon from him who called you to in grace, in the grace of Christ, to a different gospel, which is really not another gospel, but there are some who trouble you and want to pervert the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel to you than what we have preached to you, let him be accursed. The word is anathema, and it means cursed of God. Paul, he is so... In sense that people would compel others to come and to start living like a Jew again, that he calls down a curse from God on these people. As we have said before, and now say I say I again, if anyone preaches an other, any other gospel to you than what you have received, let him be a curse. He says it twice. And he's not missing words. What essentially these guys were doing is they were veil menders. They're saying, no, 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 the veil got sewn back up. You need to do this. You need to live the way that we did before the whole Jesus thing. And essentially what that does is it puts the effect before the cause. Remember, we're looking at cause and effect. You can't do it. If you want to live for Christ, you have to understand it's on the basis of His finished work. There's nothing you're going to add. And if you try, you're going to fail. It doesn't count. It's not part of the gospel. The gospel is Jesus came, died for your sins, went to that cross, atoned, died in your place, and by his blood covering you, you come into the presence of God. You can't get any better than that. Why would you ever go back to a failed system? And yet people wanted, because our flesh, guys, we want to feel like, I want to have a list of boxes to check. Yeah, I've I've done that, I've done that, I've done that, I've done that. It puts the effect before the cause. You have to take it in the order that he sets it up, or it's not effective at all. We'll get into that next week when we look at, when he talks about what happens if you want to walk away. Because that's what these people were in danger of doing. They were in danger of walking away. Again, life was hard. Life was hard for them. Life is hard for us at times too. One of the things I look at is, I was looking at a statistic again the other day, at how there's just an exiting from church or from churches, that church attendance is going down more and more. And we live in this technological age where, I mean, and I struggled when I first came here because we live stream our, our services. I struggled. I thought, you know, Lord, do we want to keep that going? Because does that give people an excuse not to be in fellowship? And we'll talk about that as we go here. And yet, I also know that people were coming because they were, seeing what we're doing here. And so uh, we we elected to keep that here and keep it in place. However, we want to be sure that the gospel's going forth as it is. We don't want to add something. We're not going to put some weird rule on people. We're not, you know, and uh, people, I remember the first church I was in, I, I came out of the Mormon church and I got saved at this place called Trail Christian Fellowship, which is in southern Oregon. It's a great, it was blessed by some fabulous teaching and all. And I went fishing with a guy one day, and he said, we're leaving that church. And I said, why? And he says, well, there's not enough rules. And I went, oh my gosh. And I was just a baby Christian. I was like, really? We need more rules? And I, you know, I had just come out of mountains of rules in the Mormon church. Oh my gosh, you can't turn around without having a rule, having a lot to obey. And so the Holy Spirit just showed me that, no, that, that's wrong. That's legalism. That's putting the cart before the horse. It's putting the effect before the cause. And that's really important. You gotta see this in this passage. The writer is saying this is what we get and this is how we respond. And we'll get to that. We better get to that or I'm gonna keep talking and we won't. But um So be careful of veil menders. I just call them that, but they're people that want to tag things onto simple faith in Christ that produces a life that, show me your faith, I'll show you my works, like James says. Yeah, that's fine. But again, one before the other. Don't get those backwards. I, oh, I'm not going to go there. I was going to talk about the TV guys again, but no. <laughs> Verse 21, and since we have, since we have a high priest over the house of God, he's saying, since you have a living advocate, That's where the priest was. He was an advocate, represents God to me and me to God. You have a representative to the Father. Uh, Interesting. The wording here is fascinating to me. I want you to visualize with me for a minute this torn curtain. And there's a living advocate and what he does, he, this is not a passive thing that he does here. This is active. The way that it's written in Greek is very active. And what he does, he grabs hold of us and pulls us into the presence of God. It's not passive. Oh, the way's open. I can go in there if I want to. No, Jesus says, come. I I love Revelation chapter 22 verse 17. And the spirit and the bride say, come that him who thirsts Come and and come and drink of the water of life freely is what it says there. And the picture again here is that that veil is torn and we have not only access, we have bold access to God, but that through the blood of Christ that he literally pulls us into his presence. That's awesome. It's a, it's an active thing. The question is, do I want to draw near? Do I want to draw near to Him? I can't encourage you enough, my friend. If you have released your life to Christ, if you've let the weight of your life down onto Him, let Him draw you in. Let Him pull you close. Very important. He's not going to violate your will, but He has nothing but good for you. And He wants to pull you close. He wants to draw you close. I just... This high priest is different. He's, he's not only a forever high priest and the sacrifice. He didn't have to atone for himself. He doesn't go once a year, but he lives there, okay? He, we're, he, we're told in Hebrews 7.25, he ever lives to make intercession for us. Approaching him is not based in any way upon my effort, but on his, again, his complete and his completed work. So the third thing we see here is since you have a legal right, And since you have this living, loving advocate with the Father, and since you have been washed and cleansed, we'll see that here in the next verse, he says, let us do three things. What follows here in verses 22 through 25 are three statements of let us. So he says, since we have, let us cause effect. Do you see how this pieces together? Uh, He says, let us draw near in verse 22, let us hold fast in verse 23 and let us consider one another in verse 24. Pardon me, verse 22, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, since we have our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Now the word let us here, it's not a command. It's a mild imperative, but there's strength in it, okay? You need to understand, he's he's encouraging. This is a strong encouragement. He's saying, let us go in. And he includes himself in this, by the way. He's not talking about they. He's talking about us. And I'm not talking about they. I'm talking about us too. Because this applies to you and I. Because we have these things in Christ, these are the right responses of a life that's given to him. So he he's saying, let us draw near. Uh, do you realize how radical this is? When we read Exodus 19, God is saying, don't draw near. You can only come so close because I am utterly holy and you are not, by the way. You can only come so far because if you come any further, you're going to die. That's the righteous requirement of a holy God. Again, proof that that righteous requirement is fulfilled by Christ and offered to us is the basis upon which he says, let's draw near. Let's come close. Let's come into his presence. And let's see what he has for us individually. Because now it's no longer a covering for sin. Now it's a relationship. Now my sin is completely gone. It's, it's erased. Oh, there are times where we, we have lasting consequences to sin. I'm not saying that, but in God's eyes, on the basis of coming to him by faith and saying, Lord, I believe it. I believe you went to that cross for me, that now I can come into his presence boldly and I can draw near. So he says, let us draw near. And, and What he's talking about here is he's talking about the desire to draw near to him personally. He's not talking about drawing near to church as good as that is. He's not talking about the the desire to live an obedient life as important as that is. He's talking about drawing near to the Lord himself. let us draw near to him. Let's come into his presence. Let's draw near. Let's understand the nature of the relationship. He loves you. With an infinite love. It's a love that I won't totally understand the sight of heaven, but I want every bit of it I can have. His love is poured out. He says, come close. Let's relate. It's the basis of the relationship. And so it's about a desire to draw near to him. It's not about a mandate. It's not about a law. It's not about a rule. It's about a relationship. He says that we have our hearts sprinkled clean. We've talked about in the old covenant that it could never affect the conscience. It could never go to the heart of a man or a woman. It could never go to the inner person. It could not cleanse. Those animal sacrifices could provide a covering, it could, but it could never cleanse the conscience. And that's what he's talking about here. This is Internal. spoken about Judaism and all the externals there uh, and how it was a delight to the senses, the temple and the tabernacle and the priests and all the hoopla and the regalia and the sacrifices and the whole deal. All external. A great thing to, to be a part of. And yet he is saying forsake that for this. Move away from the externals and allow the Lord to rule and reign in your heart. And Christian, that's what he tells us. He wants that rightful place on the throne of my heart. The question is, am I willing to yield that, to be sold out wall to wall for him or not? Or I'm esteeming that what I want my way, the things I want to live by, all the rules I want to follow, whatever it is, am I putting that in a greater place than his dominion in my life? We've talked about this again. We've talked about it at length that the old covenant, it could never go. It could never reach inside. That's why he prophesies in chapter nine about Jeremiah chapter 31 where he says, the days are coming when I'm going to write my law in their heart. And you, one man won't have to say to the other, know the Lord. They'll all know me from the least to the greatest of them. And, and that's what's come about in Christ. That's the new covenant. That's the essence of the relationship. That's what we draw near to. That's who we draw near to. And our bodies are washed, he says. He says our hearts are sprinkled. And that's our conscience. And When the Bible talks about the heart of man, he's talking about the inner person. And the inner person now through the blood of Christ has been sprinkled clean. And then he talks about our bodies being washed with pure water. I remember when I went to Israel, and stand on the southern flanks of the Temple Mount, and there were just... Dozens of these mikvahs. Do you know what a mikvah is? It's a, it's a bath. It's a ceremonial washing place that the Jews use because they couldn't do anything without ceremonially, ceremonially being cleansed. And, and I mean, still today, I've mentioned before, you go into a public restroom in Israel and chained to the sink is a, a, a cup with two handles. So they could take and wash one hand and then take and wash the other hand and let the, the water drain. And there was a whole, there's a whole deal that they do. And it's all about ceremonial washing. And what he's saying is, no, that's part of the old covenant. That's done. Your bodies have been washed with pure water. Uh, it speaks of the, the, the permanent cleansing that we have in Jesus. It's not something that has to be repeated. They had to repeat that cleansing over and over and over and over again. He says, have you come to Christ? Have you let the weight of your life down on him? Have you given him the rightful place in your heart? You are cleansed. Oh, he's still cleaning. He's still working. But he speaks again. It talks about sanctification, and sanctification is we are being, we have been declared holy, and that is something that we get with the transaction, with the initial transaction. He says, "You are you are cleansed, and now being a cleansed vessel, you have the right to come into my presence. And now I am going to be cleansing you. Are you going to cooperate with the work I want to do? because we are being sanctified. The Bible tells us that we're washed in the water of the Word. And when Paul put that forth, he knew how that would lock in to people's minds. This is, again, it's a reference to this old way of... but the new way of having been cleansed and now being cleansed by the Word, the water of the Word itself. We also look at this as... Uh, I, what it reminds me of, it's not directly indicated by the text, is baptism. In the New Covenant, the New Testament, there's only one baptism. There's only one, and it's not merely external here. Uh, we know that baptism is an outward sign of an inward act. It, it's, it's, there's a transaction that's gone on that you can't see. And that with baptism, that we are baptized into his death as we go into the water, resurrected to newness of life. It's symbolic of what's going on in the heart. That's the writer's point. The heart. All of this is oriented and pointed at the heart of man, the heart of women, that with the new covenant, he doesn't do the external thing like he did in the old. He goes right for the heart. And that's Great news. Guys, If I hope that you're excited about the gospel, about God's power to cleanse a filthy, dirty life, about His power to come and to seat us in the heavenlies, about His power to work in us and to create this community of believers that are people that we know we're in process. We know that we're all broken in ways. But the fact is is that we want His will. We want His agenda in our lives. That's why I've warned so many times, don't think you know God's will for the person sitting next to you, especially if that's your spouse. If you know that, what's good for you? Because it's important that we understand that His will for us is custom-tailored to us. He is cleansing. He is working. He is Sometimes prying our fingers off of sin. He is doing a work that only he can do. And he wants us to be paying attention to what that is in our lives, not the person next to us, not the person down the street, not somebody else. Let God work with them the way he works with them and be participating with the work he wants to do with you. That's just good advice from a brother because I know what he's doing in my life, and I have no idea. Sometimes as a pastor, people come to me and say, well, what what do you think God's will is for my life? And I've laughed and said, as soon as I figure out his will for my life, I'll let you know, maybe, might something apply to you, but it's about a personal relationship again. So he says, again, note, he says, since we have these things, it's not expressing a condition that by which we can approach God when we get that. They're things that we already possess. So, again, careful not to put the cart before the horse. Verse 23, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. He says the confession of our hope. He says to hold fast the confession of hope. The first century believers were discouraged. And this is simply, he's encouraging them to stick with it. He's saying, draw near, hold on, Uh, hang on to Jesus. They were wavering because they were discouraged. They, Again, the whole purpose of this letter is so that he could give them encouragement to stick with it, to understand there's really nowhere to go and to hold on. He's saying, come close, hold on. Uh, the, the idea here is, is that you're clutching it as though somebody wanted to take it away. That's, it's, this is, a, it's a strong statement in the original language, and he's saying, hold on. In other words, grab a hold of this. Grab a hold of Christ. Something that's worth noting is he's talking about, uh, holding on to our confession of hope, an outward confession springs from an inward profession. In other words, as I profess Christ, it's not what goes into a man that that defiles him, it's what comes out. If I'm not professing Christ, if if I'm making an... what's going on in my heart. As I profess Christ, I confess Christ. It follows. I hope that made sense. It's a little confusing. The point, again, is do you believe this stuff? Do you believe and confess? They go hand in hand. You'll always act on what you believe, folks. We do. We will always, always, always act on what we believe. If I have a shallow walk with the Lord, I might have an empty confession. But if I want all that God wants for me, It's going to show in my life. It's going to show in the things I say. It's going to show in the way I treat other people. It's going to show in the way that I deal in circumstances in my life. It's going to show. Cause and effect. Something that's worth noting here is that discouragement makes people avoid community. Uh, This is a hot button for me as a pastor. It's something I'm sensitive to. uh, Church bullying... I read stories of what goes on sometimes in churches. Spiritual abuse. Um, they don't have a place in the body of Christ. And I, again, I understand that we're broken in ways. All of us are in process. All of, none of us have arrived. And there's got to be great room in the body of Christ for us to have grace for one another. To just understand, you know what? My broken doesn't look like your broken and yours doesn't look like mine. There's also a place, and where I draw the line pastorally, is if somebody is being injured. And that's where I'll step in. Because sometimes people hurt people. Hurt people hurt people. And it's a place that we're sensitive to. And, and again, I'm not talking about people, things that, you know, cracks and warts and blanks. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about when... when a, churches get involved in stuff where they can go sideways is because injury is allowed to go on and that's a tough place enough said on that it's just a, a line that's drawn uh interesting again we talk about cause and effect in philippians 1:13 the apostle paul he's in he's in jail he's actually he's chained to a roman guard at the praetorium uh which is in rome and and he's writing this joyful letter. Philippians is the most joyful letter in all of the New Testament. And he's in jail. He's in prison. Uh, and yet he says in in one thirteen he says, "My imprisonment in the cause of Christ has become well known throughout the whole Praetorian Guard and everyone else." These guards kept on evidently getting saved. They kept on giving their lives to Christ because he's chained to the guy. And what a what an opening for the gospel, right? And so for him. The cause was Christ. He lived for Christ. He's saying that's, He is the cause in my life. The cause of Christ is why I live. It's what I live for. What was the effect? Prison. You know, there's a, there's a, a so, sort of a social gospel or a feel good gospel out there that says, you know, that God's good and we're good and it's all good. And if you're not, if things aren't good, then maybe something's wrong. Something that breaks my heart, again, when I hear someone say, you know, I'm going through this trial in my life and I've got this horrible thing going on, I think God's mad at me. No, my friend, if you have given your life to Christ, He will never be mad at you. His wrath has passed over you. He is not angry with you. And we'll look at it when we get to chapter 12 when we talk about the Lord chastening, chastising those whom He loves. That He actually... Not, not just allows passively circumstances in our life that are hard, but he engineers them because he loves us and he's more interested in what he wants to do in my heart than what my circumstances look like at this moment. And, and so here Paul, he, cause and effect, cause, I'm living for Christ. Effect, I'm in jail. It, the fact is, is that as a Christian, it's not an automatic guarantee that things are going to be cushy and rosy. You gotta get that. We live in this society that, that promotes instant gratification and we're always out for the gratification, whether it's on my smartphone or it's through the stuff I'm watching or through whatever it is. And, and it's just the social media thing with these little sound bite relationships, you know, it, it's all about gratifying something inside. And I, I'd submit to you that Ultimate gratification can only come through understanding what He has done and walking in what it is that He wants us to walk in. In verse 24, He says, Let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works. The third thing we look at here is he says, let us pull together as Christians as we stir up. This is a strong word. What he's saying is let's stimulate one another. Let's let these truths, these realities, these things about him that are motivating us to act, let let them have the, the effect of stirring up, stimulating one another to love and good works. Love can't exist in a vacuum. Essentially, that's what's being said here that we understand our position in Christ, we understand what He's done for us, we spend time in community, and we want to be able to stimulate one another. The world is centered on self. The body of Christ is centered on others. How's it going with that? Are you other-centered, or are you all about you? Uh, Those are hard questions. There's times where in my office, where I'm preparing this stuff, I, I say, Lord, You know, just plumb my heart. And this is one, it's like, man, oh man, Lord, there's still so much selfishness left in me. Won't you please work? Won't you come and, and, and mold me and shape me? Continue to, to cause me to think more like Jesus, to be conformed to the image of your son. That happens a lot as we spend time with one another, as we stimulate one another, as, as we stir up love, and good works between ourselves. These are the effects of Jesus' work. Verse 25, he says, Not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, as is the manner of some, but exhorting one another, and so much the more as you see the day approaching. He, essentially, what he's saying is don't not draw together. Don't not be in fellowship with one another. Don't quit gathering together. Again, these people are discouraged, and they're avoiding community. They're pulling back because life is really hard. And yet he's saying, no, that that's a mistake. Don't do it. You need, we need one another. We need community. I'll tell you what, it's a big world out there, and it's an evil world, that if we don't have a place where we can go, where we can have safety, where we have the freedom to worship the Lord, where we have the ability to come before Him and say, bread of heaven, feed my soul, then we're really going to be out of balance as Christians. We really need to have this time. I've mentioned before, this is the huddle. Out there through the rest of the week is where we run the plays. And I'm not a big football fan, but that one works. I mean, it is. This is truly, this is where we huddle up. And the rest of the week is where we allow the Word of God to manifest in our lives. We are applying His Word to our lives. We're wanting to live for Him. We are wanting to hear from Him. We are wanting to draw near. We're wanting to hold fast. And out of that, we're not wanting to forsake the assembling of ourselves together because this is where one of the primary areas where we draw strength to go the rest of the week. He says, "Don't do that." Some people have gotten in the habit of doing. Is what he's saying. Don't fall into that habit. It's a bad habit. And and I'll tell you what: there are so many things that compete for our for our affections, for our attention. Uh, don't forsake the assembling of yourselves together. Don't not draw together. Um, The cause is Christ as we wrap up this morning. As we look at cause and effect, I'm gonna, I wanna recap here. I wanna uh, draw some conclusions. The desire to draw near can be choked. Luke chapter 8, Jesus talks about worries and pleasures of this world, of this life. Competing desires, even good desires can choke. They can cause us to draw back. Check your desire for Him personally, one-on-one. What does your desire for Jesus look like? How does that manifest in your life? What place does He have in your daily affairs? Those are hard questions sometimes, but they're worth asking ourselves, and they're worth responding to. When He talks about as the day approaches, today is one day closer to eternity in His presence than yesterday. That day is approaching for all of us. And it might be a different day that where the Lord already knows the day that we're out of here and we're with Him. But each day is a day closer to the fulfillment, the utter fulfillment of all that we look at here. So to sum up cause and effect, when we look at cause, if you're a believer, if you are a child of God, if you are a child of, of God and and, and you know you have identified with Christ, you've let the weight of your life down onto Him. Then the progression here is, is is very evident. He says, "Since we have a legal right to boldly come into God's presence as a member of the family, remember, like the kid with the fridge, I mean, we can boldly come in. He wants He wants a relationship. He desires fellowship with us." If you say, what were we created for? And a lot of times people say, well, to serve God. And I say, no, 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 we were not created to serve God. We were created for fellowship with God. That was broken in the garden. It was restored at the cross. And now the door is open. The way is open. The veil is torn. He not only wants you to come in, he pulls you in. You have to simply want that to be the case. So since we have a legal right, since we have a living advocate, we have a high priest representing us to the Father, and the Father to us, in the very court of heaven, without shame. That's amazing to me. I, you have no, there, there, you can have no shame. I know my life. I know the things that I've done. I, you know, I know what I'm capable all of that. He says, you know what? You can come in. I want you to come in. I want a relationship with you. You don't have to be ashamed. I died for that, to take away your shame to take away your guilt. So since we have a legal right, we have a living advocate, a high priest that represents us to the Father, he he takes hold of us, pulls us into God's presence. Since we have a heart that's been cleansed, completely cleansed from an evil conscience, that's what he says here. Our sins are forgiven. Action, reaction, cause, In effect, since we have all of those things, let us do these three things is what he's saying here. Let us draw near to him and building our lives around him and all that we think, say, and do. Say yes to Jesus. That's essentially what's being said. Let's draw near. Let's come close. Let's explore this relationship that he offers and let's grow in it because we're all growing. We're in different places. And yet, he pursues this. That's why the veil was torn. That's why he pulls you in. So let us draw near. Let us hold fast to our confession of hope in a hopeless world. Folks, it doesn't, it's not rocket science to look in the news, to go out there and and to see how, what people are doing to one another. Not what nations are doing to one another, what people do to one another. It's not rocket science to, to say, we, we don't just want Him, we need Him. It's a hopeless world. We need each other. We need to draw near. We need to hold fast. We need to hang on. As though somebody were trying to take it away from us. Hold fast. Because He's faithful. We have the answers. The singular answer Let me rephrase that. His name is Jesus. He went to a cross. He died for you. He died for me. He is the answer to the woes that are flooding through our world. Singularly. He's the answer to the issues of your life, of my life. He's the answer to why you're going through what you're going through. He wants you to draw near. He wants you to hold fast. And he wants us to pull together as believers, as Christians in a dangerous world that by design seeks to draw us away from simple devotion to Christ. There are veil menders out there. There are lots of isms out there. There are lots of things that would pull us away from this beautiful relationship that he offers. This free relationship, not based on what you do or what you've done, but based on him and what he's done and what he's currently doing. I love the way the writer puts this together here. This We need each other. No one lights a lamp and puts it under a basket. That's what Jesus said. He's saying, you know, let your light so shine before men that you glorify your Father who's in heaven. And that's by design the result of drawing near and holding fast and pulling together. Romans chapter 8 and 1 Corinthians 16 both have a word I think is really important. It talks about co-laborers for the gospel. Fellow workers is translated that way too. The word for that is synergos. It's where we get the word synergy. There is a supernatural thing that happens when we come together, folks. Synergy means that the, the sum is greater than the parts. That the effect is greater than the cause. That, that, That we, when we come together, that there's a synergy, that there is something supernatural that takes place. When we have a potluck after service, it's not just to eat. You guys can tell I like to eat. But the point is, it's not just for that. The body ministry that takes place, I think, is so important. There are certain aspects of the ministry you can't get from the pulpit. You can't get from just visiting. Iron sharpens iron, so a man sharpens the countenance of his friend. That's what the Bible tells us. That's part of why we pull together. So, we have a legal right, we have a living advocate, we have a heart that's been cleansed, therefore, we draw near, we hold fast, and we pull together. Why? Because 2,000 years ago, everything shifted. It went from being dependent on man and what he could do, how faithful he was, which wasn't very. And it went to the Lord Jesus himself going to that cross, laying down his life that we could have one. What a glorious thing the gospel is. As we look back, as we look at these this beautiful instruction in the book of Hebrews, glorious, glorious, glorious. Today we live in the present reality of the benefits of what was accomplished then. Next week, we're going to look at the final warning in the book of Hebrews. Strong warning. Actually, all of this is, it's part, in context, it's part of what he's leading up to when he talks about the danger of despising him, the danger of drawing back and, and do my best to teach that in context because it's not about struggling with sin, it's about walking away. And we looked at that, when we looked at chapter 6, we're going to look at, this is actually a stronger warning than in chapter 6 of Hebrews. And and there's direct bearing for us. There's direct application to us. Not, not talking about application. Yeah, sure, the warning's there and I'm not going to compromise it. And yet, he he also comes across with a strong encouragement on the tail end of the strong warning. So, We'll look at that as we go and um with that, let's pray, and then the worship team will come up Father, I want to thank you, oh God, just this time goes by so quickly and Lord, we pray, I pray Father, for each one here.